Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and Jerry's lurking in the background like a total creep, which is super appropriate for Jerry. And this is Stuff You Should Know. Have you been singing the song all day? Venus as a boy? <laughs> How can you not sing that song? I don't know. I mean, I guess you could be singing that um, shocking blue song, Venus, that Bananarama covered. Uh, oh, no, that's the one that I was talking about. Oh, I was talking about the Bjork song, Venus as a boy. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. I was thinking that's, of... That's a good one. I'm your Venus. Actually, funny enough, like, honestly, that had not popped into my head. And now I won't be able to get it out. So thanks a lot. <laughs> I thought of you yesterday. I was uh, someone, some, I don't even know who it was. It was just one of those dumb Facebook posts that comes into your feed said, all it said was, now the final countdown by Europe is in your head. <laughs> <laughs> that's all it takes. I was like, is that Josh? <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That's the catchiest song of all time. For <laughs> it was sure. pretty funny. That's great. So, um, Chuck, we're doing Venus, and I was, like, skimming the House of Work site looking for articles, and I started to see, uh, I saw this one article about how Venus is um, starting to get some love again from the space agencies and um, how little we actually know about it. And so yeah. I was like, this, you know, we've never done one on Venus. We don't usually do planets yet. Maybe we should eventually do all the planets sure. over time. Um, but this is a pretty good place to start because the more I dug into Venus, the more I was like, oh, this is one of the most interesting planets of all time, actually. Yeah, like, uh, you know, it's described in this article that you put together as a hellscape. And yeah. when you start reading into it, it's like, wow, you will melt and boil if you get near it or be mm -hmm. destroyed. You won't even get near it because the sulfuric acid in the clouds will destroy you. Yeah, and your teeth. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, not not a hospitable place, but possibly once was. Yeah, which makes the whole thing even more compelling. It wasn't always like this, you know? Um, it's like the mom in What's Eating Gilbert Grape when she <laughs> sees, um, is it Juliette Lewis? And says, I wasn't always like this. And Juliette Lewis says, I wasn't always like this. <laughs> it's just like that. It is, basically, except on a planetary scale. Yeah, and the, I think the cool thing about <laughs> Venus, too, which we can put a pin in this, but um, we're, we're starting to gain more interest in Venus now because it could offer a peek into our own bleak future as a planet. Mm -hmm. Yes, just like you said, put a pin in that yeah, uh, and smoke it in your hat. Right. Um, so it's weird that Venus is this hellscape now that we understand it because it's a, it's a very ancient planet as far as human consciousness of it goes because it is so bright. It's actually the third brightest object in the sky after the sun and the moon. Thence comes Venus. Um, so, like, humans have been able to see it long before we had anything like telescopes or anything like that. And, in fact, as far back as, I think, 1660 BCE or the 1600s BCE, um, the Babylonians were tracking it. And they called it Ishtar after the goddess of love and war. After the movie. And then, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then they would say it, Ishtar, blah. <laughs> and then some would go, hey, it's not as bad as everyone says. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then that person would get shouted down, and then the whole cycle would start over again. Yeah, it went by quite a few different names. It was Ishtar. Uh, they, you know, before the Hellenistic Greeks came along, they thought it was actually two different stars. Mm -hmm. So it was known as both Vesper, the evening star, and Lucifer or Phosphorus, the morning star. 
That's right. And then eventually uh, Pythagoras said, it's just one star, everyone, and can we settle on a name? And the Hellenistic Greeks said, how about Aphrodite? And then, of course, the Romans came along and said, no, we call it Venus. That's right, and that's where we've settled because the the Western world is modeled on the Roman world, I guess. But Venus, the idea that it is this feminine planet, that it has to do with love and beauty, uh, it really is in stark contrast to how we understand it today since we, we did start really exploring it in the 1960s. But even still, if you if you look at um, some of the details of Venus that have been named by people, apparently almost all of the features on Venus are named after women. Like there's a, a crater named after Sacagaway. There's a canyon named after Diana, the Roman goddess of the hunt. So it's it's all about feminine beauty, but it's also like this crazy hellscape that'll make your teeth <laughs> fall out and burn you alive. So it's a real <laughs> paradox in terms, you know what I mean? Totally. Uh, it is the second planet from the sun, um, which is makes Venus our little neighbor, mm-hmm. and which also means that if Venus is getting sunlight, it's getting that light a couple of minutes before we do. I love that. Uh, it is terrestrial, so it's made of rocks and solid things as opposed to being like a gas planet like uh, Jupiter and Saturn. And there's also a boundary between the surface of the planet and the atmosphere. So, you know, it is like Earth in some ways. Mm-hmm. but also not like Earth in a whole lot of ways. Well, it, I mean, it is often called Earth's twin and then sometimes Earth's toxic twin. I think that's an Aerosmith reference. Right. <laughs> but um, it, it, because it is closer to the sun than we are, it's one one planet in, its orbit actually is between us and the sun. It falls within our orbit around the sun, which means that to us here on Earth, Venus seems to have phases like the moon does, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think Galilee figured that out in 1610. Galileo, yeah. Oh, you you on a first-name basis? Yeah, he and I go <laughs> way back. I bailed him out of jail once. You just call him Galley? Yeah, the gal, or Gigi. <laughs> Gigi. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, when Venus is on the opposite side of the sun, it's in full phase, and then it uh, looks like it's in the new phase when it's between the Earth and the sun. Yeah, and every once in a while, our alignment with Venus and the sun is like a perfect line. And it just happened in 2012, and I, I don't think I bothered to look because I don't remember looking. But the next time it's going to happen is 2117. And unless aging researchers really have some sort of breakthrough, I'm not going to be around to see that. You didn't look, and you call yourself a friend of Gally, of Gigi. <laughs> yeah, I know. He would be so disappointed. He'd be a, so disappointed in me. <laughs> Come on, Josh. Just to look into the sky. <laughs> right. Uh, so Venus is, they call it the Earth's twin for the similarities um, and not the differences, obviously, even though, like you said, it's an evil twin. It's about <laughs> about the same size. It has about 80% of our mass, but is almost a perfect sphere because it is a slow roller. Uh, the Earth spins, obviously, everyone knows, very quickly, revolving once every day, every 20, almost every 24 hours exactly, mm-hmm. 23 hours and 56 minutes, which means, of course, that that centrifugal, uh, centrifugal motion is going to bulge the equator. So we're technically an ellipsoid in shape. Mm-hmm. But Venus spins uh, very, very slowly, once every 243 days, uh, Earth days, that is, it spins on its axis. It's the slowest spinner in our solar system and a really kind of perfect little sphere because of that. 
Yeah, it doesn't produce that bulge because it's so slow. The unsightly bulge. And also because of that same slow spin, uh, it has a, an iron core and molten mantle, a lot like Earth does. Um, and it, through that, 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 that rocky core, that uh, metallic core, um, Earth's um, magnetic field is produced. But it's also produced because it spins so fast. Well, even though it has the same kind of core and mantle that the Earth does, Venus spins so slowly, it can't produce a, a magnetic field, at least one that's not very strong. Um, I think Venus's magnetic field is 15 ten thousandths of a percent the strength of Earth's magnetic field. They got nothing. Nothing. Like, you try to use a magnet up there, it's just going to it'll just melt it. in your hand, you dummy. Don't even try it. <laughs> and you're dead anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there are some pretty cool theories about some interesting aspects of Venus. Um, one is, and this isn't a theory, this is a fact, Venus has no moon. But one of the theories is that uh, Earth's moon used to orbit Venus, but our gravity was so strong, we just came in and said, that's ours now. We'll be taking that moon. I know. Imagine seeing that moon approach out of nowhere, too. It'd be like melancholia, you know? Oh, my God, that movie. I love that movie. Did you see it recently? <laughs> uh, not too recently. I mean, I, I loved it too. I'm glad you didn't say I enjoyed it because that's a movie not <laughs> okay, to be yeah. enjoyed. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, I read this article once called, it was, um, I think it was titled like Lars von Trier is campy. And they were basically like, <laughs> okay. everybody's taking Lars von Trier incorrectly. Like, this is all, he's like a, a huge jokester. Like, this is hmm. all in jest. And once, since I read that, I was like, I really started to appreciate his stuff a lot differently. Yeah, I mean, those are, a lot of his films are tough to get through. <laughs> yeah, Tad. Dance in the Dark, you, what a party you, that is. Once you realize that it's like a joke, or at least as far as Lars von Trier is concerned, it's a joke. Like, it definitely... It, it's just easier to to take and watch, and it's actually kind of funny in some. Spots. But is that true, or were they just sort of? Theorizing? I don't. I don't know that they they had him quoted as saying like, "Yeah, you got me." But they made such a strong case that that it's tough to tough to not see it that way. After. Oh, I'll see if I can out. dig it up and send it to you. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Okay. Uh, all right. So no moon. Earth perhaps took the moon. Uh, another really interesting thing that has sprung a few different theories is that uh, the backward spin of Venus relative mm -hmm. to Earth. Mm -hmm. And this is interesting in that some scientists say, yeah, it's backwards because it used to spin relative to us the same, then it slowed down and stopped and started spinning the other way. And mm -hmm. we can tell this because it's slowing down again. They measured it 16 years apart. And at the end of that run, it spun 6.5 minutes slower which is a lot considering the Earth's rotation slows only by about 1.8 milliseconds every 100 years. Yeah. So that's the one theory. Others said it's not and never did, uh, quote unquote, spin backwards. It just got knocked 180 degrees on its axis, so it looks backwards. Yeah, like the planet got flipped upside down somehow. And so to us, it looks like it's spinning backwards, but it's spinning the same way it always has. And they're like, well, how would the planet get knocked upside down? The obvious idea is a planetoid or a meteor or something like that, striking it in just the right spot with just Man. the right force that it flipped the planet upside down. Another one is that, the, um, that Venus's atmosphere is so thick how thick is it? It's so thick. <laughs> you took my line. 
it's possible the uh, sun can create gravitational tides, like tides right. in this atmosphere, and that these tides started sloshing back and forth at some point and got so um, forceful and strong that they eventually flipped the planet over. I think this is a really good start. How do you feel? I think it's pretty great, actually. And I have one more fact I want to give out, Chuck, um, about the the day relative to the year. Okay. So, you know how the day of Venus is 243 Earth days. Yeah, this one's a little bit of a head twister. Well, it turns out that Venus orbits the sun in 225 Earth days, which means that the Venusian day is longer than the Venusian year, which is a pretty amazing fact in and of itself. It's pretty wacky. because Venus spins backward relative to the direction it orbits the sun, sunrise to like a a day-night cycle from sunrise to sunrise is actually only 117 Earth days because the sun kind of catches up with Venus in its spin. So it's not a 243-day stretch between sunrises. It's actually 117. So there's three big numbers you need to remember for Venus. Day-night cycles, 117 days. Mm -hmm. The year is 225 days, but the day is 243 days. All relative to us, of course. Well, yeah. I mean, what else counts? (laughs) Nothing. So a minute ago when I said, I think we're off to a good start, I was kind of lying. Something felt missing. Mm-hmm. But now we're really off to a good start. <laughs> I think so, too. Man. So we'll take a break and we'll talk uh, a little bit about the surface of this weird hellscape right after this. Surface of Venus, a lot of clues because uh, you know we're we're still trying to figure out Venus, and like you said, it's getting more interesting to us more recently, which is kind of cool. But there are clues kind of everywhere. Uh, the surface of Venus is one clue that maybe something pretty big did happen in its sort of recent past, uh, because Venus is about the same age as Earth is, um, somewhere in the neighborhood of four point eight billion years old. And they look at impact craters to sort of gauge how old a planet might be, like how many things have hit it over time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they know about how often that might happen. And, you know, these are good rough estimates. Uh, But when you look at Venus, the crust of Venus basically looks like it's only a few hundred million years old. So, like, maybe up to 800 million, maybe as little as 180 million years old. So that is a big clue that, like, yeah, something happened to kind of remake the surface of Venus at some point, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, and I mean, Earth's crust is much younger than the planet itself, but Earth has plate tectonics, which, you know, basically is crust recycling. Yeah. Um, Venus doesn't have that, so it is significant that the crust is that much younger than the rest of the planet. And it's also made up mostly of basalt. Um, which I think in the history of Stuff You Should Know, the 13-year history, it's the first time I said it correctly right off the bat. Instead of um, what? What did we used to say? Basalt or basil, basalt. Basalt. <laughs> I love a little sprinkle of basalt. <laughs> yeah, some exactly. chocolate ice cream. Yeah. It's so old good. bay mixed with salt. <laughs> oh, man. 
Um, so, uh, which is vol- volcanic rock, which makes sense because Venus has the most volcanoes of any planet in the solar system, something like 1,600. Yeah, that's I think alarming. some of them, they might even still be active right now. So, so, but it's weird that the crust would be that old because it's like, why would have, you know, all the volcanoes been erupting at around the same time in such measure that it would have remade the entire crust of the planet. It's a it's a head-scratcher, as you say. It is. Uh, the surface of Venus has some huge mountain ranges, uh, some as high as Everest. Uh, they have a couple of gigantic highlands um, mm-hmm. the size of Australia and South America. Uh, you mentioned all those volcanoes, which is just remarkable, like the most volcanic planet in our solar system for sure, right? Yeah, by far. I mean, I think... Earth only has like 1,597. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they have about the same gravity as we do here on Earth. So you'd feel about the same weight, but there's a little caveat there. Uh, because of their dense atmosphere, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in a minute here, mm-hmm. there's tons of surface pressure. So if you were, there's no way you would be alive on Venus, but if you happen to be, let's just say, it's about 90 times the pressure that we have here on Earth. So it would be like you're about a full kilometer down underwater into the ocean. Yeah, which is kind of crushing. I was like, oh, you'd be crushed like a tin can. And actually, that's not entirely true. I think the the diving record is a little deeper than one kilometer. Right. So a human can withstand it, but it's not the kind of thing you want to do. No. And when you combine it with the, all the other issues that you've got going on now that you're standing on Venus somehow— that pressure would probably actually be the least of your worries. The like biggest the worry would be the heat. Yeah. yeah. You would have a lot of trouble with the heat because um, the, here's another fun fact for you. Mercury is the planet that's closest to the sun. Mm-hmm. It's 23 million miles closer to the sun than Venus is, but Venus is the hottest planet in our solar system. Chew on that for a second. Yeah, and that'll all be clear here in a second. Um we're kind of dancing around it, but it's it's going to be fun. So just wait. Mm-hmm. But in the 1960s, uh, and we'll talk also talk about the various sort of spacecraft that the USSR and NASA has kind of sent up to explore. But the Mariner two recorded did a little flyby and recorded surface temperatures uh, temperatures between 300 and 400 degrees. Uh, and it turns out that may be about half. I think recently they calculated it's probably more like 880 degrees Fahrenheit, which mm-hmm. basically will melt almost anything. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely aluminum, zinc, and lead for sure. Yeah. So um, it's super hot, and it's there's a, a tremendous amount of pressure at surface level. And I read this article from, I think it might have been space.com or NASA, I'm not sure, where a UC Boulder astronomer, planetary scientist named Kevin McKedrick said, you can feel what it's like on Venus here on Earth. Heat a hot plate until it glows red. Place your palm on its surface and then run over that hand with the truck. I didn't get that quote. He was saying it's very hot and there's a tremendous amount of pressure. Mm. I think That hot plate isn't 880 degrees, though, is it? No, but I mean, really, I think once you reach a certain temperature (laughs) and you're placing your hand on it, I think red hot is that 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 line where it's like after that it doesn't really matter. He was trying to be, you know, he's trying to appeal to the common person. I think so. They they take an extra class or two now in planetary science, like how to speak to like yeah normies, you know. Uh, all right. So I guess we've been dancing around like why is it so hot if it's 
not as close to the sun as Mercury. How can it be that much hotter than Mercury? Mm-hmm. And it is because Venus is a an environmental nightmare, basically. <laughs> and which is one reason why we're a little more interested now, because it gives us a peek, like I said, to what could happen to us in a very long time. Uh, but it is it is a, a CO2 nightmare on Venus. Yes, yeah, so um, Venus is locked into a run, what's called a runaway greenhouse effect. Um, and I actually talked about it in The End of the World with Josh Clark um, in the Natural Existential Risks uh, episode. Um, but the, the kind of the broad strokes of it is that the greenhouse effect, you, you want to have some degree of the greenhouse effect where you have um, visible light coming in from the sun, warming the planet, and then the planet re-releases some of that heat back through the Im- atmosphere as infrared heat. Right. And not all of it gets re-emitted. Some of it is captured by greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And this is actually, like I was saying, you, you want to have this. This is a beneficial thing because it, it prevents wild um, temperature swings between day and night. There's like a, a nice average temperature that you're going to keep throughout the day and throughout the night because that atmosphere is acting like a blanket, preventing all of the heat from re-escaping. So you do want some greenhouse gas. But what Venus is teaching us is that there's a there's a point where you can where you can reach this this um, point of no return where your greenhouse gas or uh, greenhouse effect um, just goes haywire and becomes and gets locked into a, a positive feedback loop that is positive only in the most academic sense of that term. In no way is it a good thing, at least as far as life or habitability goes. Yeah, and Venus hit this tipping point uh, a few hundred million years ago. Um, The atmosphere got really hot. Uh, They basically think the oceans literally boiled off. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because there used to be oceans and rivers, and it used to be a lot more Earth-like. But these oceans boiled off. Uh, it turned the atmosphere into water vapor, which just made the problem a lot worse because that's another greenhouse gas. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of accelerated this thing. And then eventually that water vapor was broken apart by uh, radiation from the sun, by this ultraviolet radiation. And all this hydrogen escaped into space, left behind oxygen, combining with that carbon. And what you've got is, oh, what, 96% carbon dioxide and no <laughs> water vapor in the atmosphere. No, and so Earth has, I think, 0.04% carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, and we still are able to maintain, like, a, a healthy greenhouse gas effect. Yeah. So so the fact that, that it's a runaway greenhouse effect that seems to have made um, Venus into this hellscape that it is, that's what kind of makes it a cautionary tale or at least something that's worth investigating much more deeply to find out, like, how did it reach this point? Like, where was that tipping point? Because, you know, here on Earth, we're contributing atmospheric CO2 more and more frequently thanks yeah. to the burning of fossil fuels. So it's like, okay, you know, did it hit that point when it reached, like, uh, an atmosphere of 80% carbon dioxide right. or 0.008? You know, what's the, what's the difference? And it really matters to us here on Earth. Because at some point, the 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 atmospheric concentration of CO2 or other greenhouse gases becomes enough that visible light can come in, infrared heat won't go back out, yeah. and you've got that, that runaway effect that just locks it in and you're in big trouble. So we need to find that out. And uh, it's a good thing that people are starting to talk about exploring Venus now again for the first time in a while. 
Let me ask you a question. The End of the World with Josh Clark, is that available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcast? You know, Chuck, as far as I know, <laughs> wherever you find podcasts, you can find The End of the World with Josh Clark, a 10-part series. They don't pull it like uh, Netflix after they're done with you? I don't think so. I haven't <laughs> checked on it in a little while. I'd be very dismayed. No, it's an excellent series, and if uh, this kind of thing turns you on, then you can listen to that, and then quite a few other ways that we might all become extinct. <laughs> or if me just speaking for 45 minutes in a monotone turns you on, then you're going to like it as <laughs> Ooh, well. Ooh la la. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so that's why it's hot on Venus. That's why, you know, you would just melt if you managed to reach the surface of Venus. But you wouldn't even manage to reach the surface of Venus mm -hmm. because of that atmosphere that we're talking about. Uh, you talked about our teeth uh, along with nitrogen, the the biggest component of the atmosphere of Venus is sulfuric acid, which yeah. we call battery acid. And uh, yeah, it would. Uh, I mean, your teeth would be the least of your problems because you would your skin would burn, your lungs would explode, and just these massive clouds blanket Venus, full of these lightning storms and sulfuric acid. And it's it's literally like something out of a sci fi movie, right? And if up to this point you're like meh. Prepare for this. The the <laughs> Venus member spins uh, on its axis once every 243 days. It's a Venusian day. But the upper atmosphere is so... Um, uh, Volatile? Yes. That it the clouds that make up the at upper atmosphere spin around the planet once every four days. They're yeah. moving that fast. Faster than any tornado here on Earth I saw. Um, but then down below toward the surface, the winds are just like a few miles an hour. So that difference in wind speed creates huge vortices. And apparently there's a vortex that has not fallen apart that stayed raging for a very long time now at the south pole of Venus. And they don't foresee any time when it's going to stop. So there's huge st lightning storms, clouds of sulfuric acid that form vortices uh, in this atmosphere that at surface level is the same surface pressure or the same pressure that you would find one kilometer down in Earth's oceans. Yeah, and then consider that for, you know, several billion years, Venus was a lot like us. Like I said, it was um, habitable. It had, you know, it was fairly temperate, had oceans and rivers and streams and was kind of balmy. And it was this greenhouse, runaway greenhouse gas effect that uh, that kind of made it into this hellscape. And like I said, it's a big reason we're going, hmm, maybe we should look into Mars, but also look into Venus. Yeah. So I didn't know this, but um, there was another space.com article that did a good job of kind of chronicling some of the like the history of exploring Venus, you know, growing up as a Cold War school kid, they didn't tell us like, oh, by the way, the Soviets just had a great breakthrough on Venus the other day. Let us tell you all about it. I don't remember hearing any of this stuff, do you? No, but I think that's a great little dramatic teaser. Oh, okay. So let's take a little message break and we'll tell you what the, what the Ruskies were doing in the 1960s right after this.
Okay, Chuck, I can't take it any longer. My teeth are falling out from <laughs> from the the uh, the the suspense. Man, okay. there's that Bob Newhart thing again. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I didn't learn about this in school either, but in the 19, from like the 60s to the 80s, the USSR was, uh, they were into Venus. They were, they were checking it out with pretty decent regularity through their Venera and Vega programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, and some of these milestones that they hit are some of the like first milestones in just space exploration period, Mm -hmm. um, not only for Venus, um, in 67, October of 67, Venera 4 was the first probe to ever uh, beam data back from another planet, from the atmosphere of another planet. Mm-hmm. And that's when they said, whoa, super hot. <laughs> that was very that was thick. Great Russian. <laughs> was that good? No. Yeah, it was. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was great. Uh, they, I think the Venera 4 technically did make a hard landing. The parachutes, of course, melted. And this thing actually transmitted data for about 20 minutes mm-hmm. uh, with photographs before, you know, it, it melted into nothing. And then I think a few years after that, Venera 7 had the first soft landing on any planet other than Earth, mm-hmm. uh, another first in, in visiting our solar system, like before we did stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I did not realize it, but apparently Venus is the first planet humanity's ever visited, which is pretty cool. I yeah. mean, not personally, but, you know, we sent some some machines up there as our emissaries, you know? Right. Um, in 1982, Venera 13 recorded the first ever audio on the surface of another planet, which is pretty cool. Um, Vega 1 and 2 missions in the mid-'80s deployed balloons into the atmosphere to make measurements. So a lot of what we know about Venus came from these early Soviet explorations. Um, But it's not like the, uh, you know, the United States just completely ignored Venus. We did have some interest in it. I think we had the first ever um, flyby of Venus with our Mariner 2 probe. Back in uh, 1962, I believe. Yeah, that was the one I mentioned earlier that recorded um, what what seems like a half-accurate temperature mm-hmm. yeah, of Venus. Right. Uh, but there was also the Mariner 5 and the Mariner 10 in 67 and 74. And then we started to get a little more intense with it. In 78, we launched uh, an orbiter and a, and a multiprobe, the Pioneer Venus Orbiter and the... Uh, the PV multiprobe. Mm-hmm. And I think the multiprobe sent four different things, four entry craft uh, into the atmosphere in December. And then the orbiter, you know, did its thing. It orbited, kind of studied, studied things from a safer distance until 1992. Yeah. So we were getting some stuff on Venus, but then it just kind of went away. We stopped, um, we stopped uh, researching it actually after Magellan, which was launched in 1989 from the space shuttle. Um, <clears throat> which, by the way, I was reading like the official accident report on the Columbia oh. um, co- crash, and it is just—it's jarring. But it's amazing yeah. what this just you know scientific explanation of it, really dry technical stuff, right. still can like really jog your imagination and kind of put you like in in the catastrophe, even though they don't seem to be trying to. It just for some reason it really kind of gets you in the right way. Is all that um, stuff just online? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like a just, you know, 400 page document about what exactly went wrong, exactly when down to, you know, I think maybe the the 
decisecond, if not the millisecond. Jeez. Um, yeah, they really they really dug into it. I still never um, saw that uh, documentary. It's still out there. I it's know. gonna just it's stirring. It's gonna just knock you on your butt. Have you seen Twelve Years a Slave yet? <laughs> no. I know. Right, You're gonna ask me that it. like you once have, a year. <laughs> <laughs> you have you have homework this this uh, weekend. But oh, I know. Um, but anyway, as I was saying, Magellan was launched from the space shuttle in 1989, and it was kind of hanging out monitoring uh, Venus until 94. And then after that, and even kind of a little bit before that, um, just the, the focus on Venus kind of started to die in no small part because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? Yeah, I mean, they were they were way more into it, uh, into it than we were. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it collapsed, and so a lot of that stuff stopped. Um, NASA said, you know what, you get a lot more out of your exploration dollar mm-hmm. by going to Mars because it's it's way more hospitable than Venus is. And so we can use these robots. And now, you know, with Mars landers, and it's just amazing, like the stuff that we're bringing back from Mars. Yeah, but USA. As, yeah. But as a result, <laughs> Venus was sort of like cast aside because it's just, it, it's tough. I think that Venera 13 and 82 – it has the record for the longest man-made object ever on Venus, and that was two hours before it melted. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And that's so, a lot of dough to sink into something that you know, like, and you know, that was when eighty-two. We could, I'm sure, we could get something up there for for more hours than that now, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure how much longer. No, but we need to figure it out, and the only way to figure it out is to start going back there. Right. And so so we are. I think this uh, this month, June 2021, NASA said, hey, everybody, get this. We've got two visits planned, two missions planned for Venus by 2030. Um, there's the Veritas mission, which has a bunch of um, different scientific instruments named in its name. It's a big acronym. There's also Da Vinci Plus, which sounds like a new streaming service for maybe PBS. <laughs> <laughs> and they're both going to be going by uh, 2030, but it's not just the United States who has its its um, eyes trained on or sights trained on, on Venus. Uh, Europe, um, the ESA has a, a Venus program in the works. India does as well. Russia does as well. And there's a, um, a private company called Rocket Lab that's going to be sending something up there by 2023, actually. Venus is literally hot right now. It is. I have did, seen it in the news, and I think. Uh, did you mention how the old House Stuff Works website that we worked for had a really recent article on on this? Right, like why we were poking yeah. around. That's what initially caught my attention about. Oh, this. Okay. Did you see the thing though? Also, um, there was a big a big to do. Uh, I think in June of 2020, or at least sometime in 2020. There was a um, a bunch of press on Venus because some British re- researchers said, "Hey, we were examining the the Venusian atmosphere with a radio telescope, and we found a biosignature phosphine." And everybody said, "What are you talking about?" And they said, "No, really, check it out." So they wrote this paper, and um, it does make kind of sense to an extent that that you might find life. At some port, some like point in the Venetian atmosphere, because parts of it are, you know, the same temperature and, and air pressure as you'd find on Earth, but it also just makes zero sense because it's just so inhospitable, too. You know? Yeah, I mean, it would have to have really evolved to be able to survive. And again, maybe possible, but then some other scientists came along because they, you know, they smelled something rotten, 
and they said, let me see those papers. And they, <laughs> they looked him over and they said, you know what? We're not going to say this is, we're not going to falsify this and say this is definitely wrong. But maybe you might have gotten this confused with sulfur dioxide instead of phosphine because mm-hmm. they these chemicals both absorb radio waves at a similar frequency. And everyone sort of has made this mistake at some point, guys. So <laughs> a rookie mistake, you, you shouldn't feel too bad. But it's probably sulfur dioxide. It makes a lot more sense. Um, but like, like I said, they, they didn't definitely shoot it down. And no. I think it just sort of piqued everyone's interest to kind of get going again. And with these, you know, with these radio telescopes, we can finally, you know, I think for a long time, we couldn't even see anything at all because of the telescopes that we had, right? Yeah, it's just blanketed by the super thick atmosphere that light can't even penetrate any longer. It's So um, now that we have radio telescopes, we can see a lot more clearly into it. But yeah, we're just on the very beginning cusp of starting to study it. And it is possible that there is that there was a biosignature and the Brits didn't get it wrong um, because it would have to be a low oxygen, um, like an anaerobic type of life. And that, that's exactly the kind of um, organism that produces phosphine. So it's not like it's been settled, like you were saying, but um, the uh, it's just tantalizing, you know? It just in, in addition to learning more about Venus and maybe the, the lessons it can teach us about what we need to do or not do here on Earth, the idea that maybe there's some weird rando life swirling around at hundreds of miles an hour in the Venusian atmosphere, just, it's like, yeah, let's, let's go check Venus out now. Yeah, I feel like I never hear about space programs from many other countries except for, like, China, the U.S., and and the old Soviet Union. Yeah, I I never hear about the Brits exploring space. Well, they're with the ESA, I believe. So they just all got together? I think so. And then, um, yeah, India has its own program now, too, that's pretty uh, ambitious as well. So, What about Japan? Do they have a space program? Yeah, they have a space program. I don't remember what it's called, but they definitely do. Um, There's a lot more collaboration than there used to be during the Cold War, from what I understand. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, because we're trying to solve global problems here, and, you know, Venus might hold the key to some of those. Yeah. It's, It's our Venus. It's our fire. What's our desire? That's right. <laughs> you got to go listen to Venus as a Boy, too. You're going to love it. Uh, there's also Venus in Fur, uh, Velvet Underground. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Venus... Uh, I can't come up with a good joke, okay. so we'll just forget about it. And then <laughs> I really beat it out. Bob Newhart <laughs> <If> you, style. <laughs> yeah. If you, Bob Newhart would have finished the joke. That's why I'll never fill his shoes. Right. Uh, if you want to know more about Venus, well, then just look skyward and uh, see what you think. And maybe do a little research, too, while you're at it. And since I said look skyward, that means it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this Pog's uh, military follow-up because we heard from... Uh, quite a few military members already, and it was in our real time. It was just released earlier today from uh, service people who were quite fo- uh, fond of the little pog currency that they had over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, longtime listener, guys, love the show. Just listened to the episode and thought I'd write in. I was in the Air Force for just shy of a decade when you mentioned the Army and Air Force Exchange Services pogs, and it brought me back. Instead of using coins, they would give you these pogs as change. So if you bought something for Oh, 95 cents, the cashier would give you a five cent pog. Subsequently, if you bought something for 93 cents, they would still give you a five cent pog because there were no one cent pogs. 
That's hilarious. So they rounded down, I guess. It's kind of cheap. So you would frequently lose money on those transactions. I remember being frustrated when I first experienced this. If I remember correctly, there uh, being only 5, 10, and 25 cent pogs. That's all I I saw. Yeah, 5, 10s, and 20s. Mm -hmm. I remember having stacks and stacks of these pogs while overseas, and I rendered them completely worthless. Uh, Looking back, I'm sure I could have bought a dollar worth of pogs and exchanged them for real U.S. currency, but the thought never crossed my mind. I think they owe me some money. (laughs) Uh, I wish I would have remembered my pog days. I was uh, also way into pogs in the 90s. Because that would have been a good way to pass the time while over there. Uh, thanks for always being there on my hour commute to work. I look forward to Tuesdays and Thursdays every week. Uh, P.S. My family was moving recently and I was going through an old box of my things and found a lone pog with Maggie Simpson on it. Nice. Uh, not sure why I decided to keep that one after all these years, but I did. And that is from Jeff. That's an awesome email, Jeff. Thanks a lot for that one. Agreed. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Jeff did and tell us about the pog you found or what your tour of duty was like or anything like that, you can get in touch with us via email at stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.